Good morning, beloved. I'm Scott Weatherford. How are you guys? Did y'all have a crazy week like I did this week? Just really busy. Here's some things uh, that I had going on. I had to go to Victoria, Texas uh, on Tuesday where uh, Tara and I started a church there back in 1992. And one of our founding members, Hewlett and Howe, went to be with the Lord. And, and I went to do uh, to speak at his memorial service, his, his home going. And it was one of those deals where with a tear in my eye and a joy in my heart, that we said goodbye to this great friend of mine. And of course, we'll see him again. He's more alive than he's ever been before. And he wouldn't come back if we asked him to because he's with the Lord. And as we sang that song just a second ago, I will rise when he calls my name. One day, the Lord's gonna say, Scott, come home. And there'll be a shout in heaven and probably a shout on earth, finally. <laughs> finally, yeah. But uh, just uh, and then we recorded our next sessions for... Um, for the This Is Us campaign that's going to come up in the fall as we talk about who we are and what we are. Now, this year, with our, with our teaching time and gathering time and group time and God time, we've aligned all these things. And what we've done in group time, not only are we providing a, a video of me teaching, but our Sunday school classes have got a great in-depth teaching that goes with that that a group of writers from our church is writing. So all based on this theme of This Is Us. So you want to get involved in this and enjoy all of that. And this is this week. Plus, I recorded three podcasts. Uh, Scott Weatherford podcast will be coming online in about two weeks. You could watch for that. And we'll be talking about a multiplicity of things. And then uh, I, we also did some other video recording, a video podcast as well. So all the stuff is coming. It's been a crazy week. And then this week, we do Summer Soaked, which I am so excited about as I'll be teaching you what I teach pastors all over the world. And this morning, get this, this morning, as I was sitting right there, I happened to look at my iPad and got an email from a pastor in New Zealand who wants us to come and teach pastors there. Anybody want to go to New Zealand? Yeah, here am I, send me. Yeah, we got a whole lot of volunteers. Christian, we'll talk about it, okay? All right, yeah, so that's exciting about what God is doing and opportunities. But this morning, I want to talk to you about something that I think affects every one of us in this room, and that's dealing with adversity. Dealing with hurt and, and, and hang-ups and brokenness and troubles in this world. Anybody got troubles in this world? Yeah, I think all of us do. Nobody knows the troubles I have seen. Nobody knows with Jesus, to quote the spiritual. But I want you to listen to this psalm. We're going to start with this psalm. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. How many of their troubles? All. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves, and saves the crushed in spirit. If you're brokenhearted, in fact, one translation says, Take heart. If you're brokenhearted, take heart. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. In this world, you will have trouble. Isn't that true? People cause most of our problems. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Okay, y'all are not with me yet. You're going to get there, though, because we're going to have some fun today. You know what I've discovered about people? There's basically three kinds of people. There's, there's ignorant people. They're just ignorant they go through life and they do ignorant things, right? Do y'all know anybody like that? 
If you don't know anybody like that, it's probably you. Just ignorant. They do things they just don't know any better. They're not self-aware, and they just, they're ignorant. Then there's people that are sloppy. They know better, but then they do things what they know better than not to do. Y'all know anybody like that? They're sloppy. They forget what they're supposed to say, how they're supposed to act, what they're supposed to do, or they're sloppy in it. And then there's evil people. People that are bent on doing you harm and wounding you and evil people. And there are people that are evil. Wouldn't you agree with that? Some of y'all know those evil people. Some of you married into families of evil people. You get it. But you're going to have trouble in this world. Jesus said this. On the night he was betrayed, he told his disciples this. Listen to this. I have said these things to you that you might have, what's that word? Peace. You see, when I have peace, I can face most anything in life. Are y'all with me? When I have peace, it doesn't matter what the doctor says. It doesn't matter what rebellion my kids do. It doesn't matter what the banker says. When I have peace, it buoys my soul. Peace holds me up. Jesus said this, my peace I give you, not as the world gives unto you, give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be dismayed. Peace, that you might have peace. In this world, you will have, I love this translation, it says tribulation. I like the word tribulation because that means to stir up. In this world, you're going to have stuff that stirs you up, makes you muddy, makes you uncomfortable, stirs you up. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, when we're talking about the world, I'm talking about people, I'm talking about this world system. I'm talking about, you know, we can watch TV and get stirred up. Do y'all know that? You watch an hour of Fox News and you will get stirred up. I heard a pastor say one hour of Fox News, five hours of Joel Osteen. That's what it takes to overcome it. <laughs> just, just teasing. I just want to just be happy and tease y'all this morning. So we are going to have difficulties. There's a cultural drift away from godliness. There's a cultural drift towards wanting what I want when I want it. But God's on the move on, on your behalf. God is moving on your behalf. And that starts giving me peace. When life turns difficult, we often think that God has abandoned us. Do you, do you feel that way? Have you ever felt like, God, where are you? Where are you? Why aren't you showing up? Why don't I feel you like I once felt you? Or why aren't you moving in my behalf? Am I the only one that feels like that? No, there's two honest people in the room. The rest of y'all will talk about lying next week. Here's the deal. This is what I've discovered. When God is quiet, when I don't sense his presence, there's one or two things that are going on. Either I have sin in my life that is barring me from hearing God. It's not that God's not speaking and not moving. It's that my sin has gotten me ca captured by my own depravity. It's not God, it's me. Or there's no sin that God's about to move in a way I've never seen move before and he's going to reveal himself to me in alignment with scripture that's going to reveal himself in a deeper way of me understanding. And sometimes that takes time. God told Abraham, hey, 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 you and Sarah, that old woman you're married to, y'all gonna have a baby. 25 years later, she gets pregnant. 
I'm sure in that period of time, God's going, oy vey. You know, Abraham's going, oy vey. Hey, 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 where are you? Sarah's laughing. In fact, Paul said this. This is awesome. I don't know if I should really tell you what it says in Greek, but I'll tell you what it says in English. It says this. And when Abraham was good as dead, good as dead, that and Sarah was an old woman. Her womb had dried up. That's literally what it means. That God brought forth the child from them, the child of promise. Now, if, for those of you that are my age and older, when you say good is dead, you really know what it means. And some of y'all, that ain't funny, pastor. Okay, it's not. But good is dead. Hmm. God is the God of promises. And I want you to write this down. Go ahead and take out your notes and write this down. <clears throat> God is the God of your circumstances. God is in control of your circumstances. He knows and he sees. Take heart. The Lord is near. Be strong and courageous because I am with you. I've got this, God says. I've got this. Tara and I have some dear friends in Canada. They're named Dave and Heather Petty. They were our prayer warriors, our prayer coverage. They prayed for us. They, I mean, that was their assignment. That was their ministry. That was their job. They loved us. They're our dear friends. And they'll probably show up here one day. You'll get to meet the Petties. And uh, Heather would say something all the time. We would be talking. We'd be talking about prayer. And, and Dave and Heather, they're serious about it. And they would, this is what Heather would say. Well, pastor, God knows. God knows. God knows. First time she said that, I thought she was just being a southerner. You know how we say stuff in the south we really don't mean? Like, bless your heart, really, you know? Well, God knows. God knows. Then I understood that she wasn't a southerner. She was Canadian. She really meant what she said. God knows. We don't inform God. We align our lives to God. God knows. And he knows our troubles. He knows our heartaches. He knows our circumstances. He knows our bank accounts. He knows our diagnosis. He knows. And Jesus has overcome the world, so therefore we're overcomers. We're overcomers. Paul said it this way to the church in Rome. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who's loved us. We are super conquerors, literally what it means. As a believer, we live in a position of peace. We live in a position of peace because of Jesus. We do not live in the absence of conflict or discomfort, but we live in a position, a position of peace. The challenge is to hold on to that, that peace of God. Now, let me say this about position of peace. What, what does that mean? That means that there's positional and there's practical. Positional means something that's already been established. Practicality means what I'm going to live out. We live in a position of peace. Listen to me. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have peace. That is your position. No matter what anyone says or anyone does, you live in a position of peace. Now, are you practicing it practically? Like I have in my pocket a credit card that puts me in the position to charge up to a crazy amount, 15, 25, $30,000. That's stupid. 
Why in the world would I ever put that much on a credit card? Why would I do that? But see, positionally, I have the authority for that kind of investment. Practically, I ain't going to do that. I ain't going to do that. They hear my wife going, amen, amen, amen. But positionally, I have that position. Now listen to me. Positionally, I have peace. Am I going to function in that? Am I going to live in that? Am I going to believe that? Or I'm gonna, am I going to let peace inhabit my heart and my mind as I trust in Jesus? I have overcome the world. In Acts chapter 12, we're talking on common adversity. In Acts chapter 12, this gives us a great introduction to how the church and people like Peter encountered in common adversity and how they overcame it, how God worked on their behalf. You see, some things had transpired. This was about a year after Jesus had established the church at the day of Pentecost, and the church was thriving. The Roman historian Josephus Flavius, or Flavius Josephus, he wrote the book called The History of the Jews. It's an extra biblical writing of the history of the Jewish people. The Romans kept history of things. They, they made sure things were chronicalized, and Josephus wrote it down. He said within a year, there were about 100,000 believers in the early church. They had all but eradicated poverty in Jerusalem. It was a movement that was unhindered, uh, unhindered uh, and un- unencumbered. Uh, and there was nothing standing in its way. And they were moving and they were working and people's lives were being changed. And the church was flipping the world upside down. The Gentiles had just come to Christ too. Some Gentiles had just come. It's gone into Samaria, up in Damascus. And so some things started happening. The first thing that happened, Stephen was, was mar- martyred. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And Saul was breathing threats. And then Saul was converted. And now this king called Herod Agrippa. There's Herods all throughout the Bible. Do y'all read the Bible sometimes and get confused? How long did Herod live? Well, there's Herod Agrippa. There's Herod Antipas. There's Herod the Great. There's all these Herods. And they were all related to the same Herod. But there were different people living in different times. And we'll talk more about that. The Romans had, Herod the Great had died. And they put Herod Agrippa the first in his power. He was evil. He was not a Jew. He was an idiomite. Some say he was an Amalekite and he was against the Jews, but he wanted to appease the Romans. But what he did, he had James, the brother of Jesus, put to death. Not the brother of Jesus, but the the brother of John and the disciple James, who was Jesus's cousin, he had him put to death because it pleased the Jews. So Herod Agrippa starts attacking. Stephen is martyred. Saul's converted. Herod Agrippa starts attacking. James is martyred. And then he has Peter in prison. Peter was the mouth of the movement. James was the pastor of the movement. And so he had him put to death. Then Jesus' brother, James, another James, became the, ruler, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So it's really interesting how all of this stuff kind of comes together. The racism of the Jewish people was off the scale. Gentiles were coming to Christ. They got furious about that. And so they wanted to stamp out Christianity. And then there was just insecurity of following Jesus in those days. Don't you think there's insecurity in following Jesus in these days? You go on national TV and you claim to be a Christ follower. Guess what happens to you? You get butchered. You run for political office and you claim claim to be a Christ follower. Guess what happens to you? You get butchered. That's what happens to you. And so in all these circumstances, this was going on. Now, you might not be dealing with Herod Agrippa or someone's putting you to death with a sword, 
But you're undergoing trials and tribulations and circumstances. And, but are you living in these uncertain times with that positional peace that's functioning in practicality? What's going on with you? Because in this world, you will have trouble because this world is broken. But fear not, I've overcome the world. So y'all ready to hear how to overcome? Are y'all ready for this? Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us this morning. And I pray that you will clear up my mind and my thinking that I may say and teach what you once said and taught, that these folks might be encouraged by your word and live in a, in a different manner. Thank you. Father, and I pray uh, just for the, the spiritual warfare I feel in this place today, the resistance to your word today. And Father, I pray that uh, that spirit will go and King Jesus, that you will be the king here, and your spirit will be the only one that's allowed to, to roam and work and move in this place today. And I thank you for what you're going to do, and I pray this all in your strong name. Amen. Now, here's the first thing. You got your, your notes out. I want you to write this down. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. God sees your trials. God sees. God is not absent He's not blind. He's not pushed himself to a side. He sees the troubles you are in. And he knows about the situations you are in. And so with that in mind, let's look at this. About that time, Herod the king, that's Herod Antipas the king, who was the grandson of Herod the great, he was crazy as a, as a pet coon in a sack. He was crazy. And, and he, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And he saw that this pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So it was about a year from the time Jesus was resurrected, crucified and resurrected. And when he heard he'd seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, attending after Passover to bring him out to the people. Just like Jesus Jesus was arrested on Passover. He was put in prison and then he was crucified during uh, the, the Passover celebration. And Peter was kind of doing the same thing. Four squads of soldiers. A squad of soldiers were four soldiers. It made a squad. Now we have the squad in, in the House of Representatives, right? Four women, who, Democratic women, who said they're, they're the squad. I found, I found that to be interesting. They called themselves a squad. Four squads, so 16 soldiers were responsible for guarding Peter. After the Passover, bringing out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made by the church. That word earnest, it means they were straining in prayer. They were begging God. This is the same word used for Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified, where he sweat drops of blood. He was under so much pressure, so much straining. They were straining in prayer. Peter was not surprised by this at all. Peter knew that he was going to face troubles. Why? Because Jesus had told him he was. Jesus had told him that, Peter, you're going to be sifted. You're going to go through trials. Trials. Now, this word sifting is interesting. Let me read for you. It's found in Luke 21, uh, 31 and 32. Let me, let me read this for you. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you 
that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now listen to me. When Jesus prays for you, it's done. Who is Jesus praying for you? Every one of you who belong to him, Jesus is praying for. And what Jesus says, Peter, I pleaded in prayer for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus knows his faith is not going to fail because look at this next phrase he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Sterizo, that's the Greek word, strengthen, sterizo, the brothers. When you have turned again. In other words, Peter, you're going to go through sifting. Satan has demanded you. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And the Lord says, no, you're not. You're going to deny me three times a day for the rooster crows. You're going to deny me. And us Baptists have been eating chicken ever since to pay back that rooster that crowed. But here's the deal. It's amazing to me. When I started looking at that passage, it bothered me. bothered me greatly. Why would God allow the prince of darkness to sift me? And what is sifting anyway? When you bake, you take flour and you put it into a colander and you sift it. And the reason you sift it, you put it in the colander, is to make the flour fuller, to bring volume to it, to bring air, so whatever you're baking will be fluffier and more delicious. But you also sift it, especially in the older days, to get the, old, to get the stuff out of there you didn't want, like bugs. I guess you got a little protein in your bread, right? Get the bugs out, to get the rocks out, to get unwanted particles out. And what Jesus was saying, Satan has demanded to sift you. But get this, God is the God of Satan. Whatever Satan determines to do for evil, God's going to flip on him to do for good. So Satan said, hey, hey, I want to sift him. And God's go ahead, sift away. Because all you're going to do is make him better bread. All you're going to do is refine him because refinement is found in adversity. Go ahead and sift him. Now, here's something else that found interesting in that passage when I started looking at it, this. Satan has asked, demanded, one says, asked permission to sift you like wheat. And the word you like wheat is actually this word, each one of you like wheat. And that is a present future tense of the Greek that says everyone who will follow Jesus Christ in the days ahead will be sifted. What? Yeah. You're going to be dropped into the hopper. Satan's going to grind the wheel. You're going to come out at the bottom fluffy and pure. Why? so you can be broken bread and poured out wine so people can feed off of you until they can feed off Jesus, to quote Oswald Chambers. You are going to be sifted. And that sifting is going to produce a goodness for God's glory. Peter knew it. Peter knew it. And this was not a one-time event for Peter, for he was sifted again and again. It's not a one-time event for you either. You're going to go through trials and tribulations. Satan does the sifting in the full view of God, and God doesn't empower Satan but allows him because God is greater, and he knows that sifting will produce righteousness in you. 
There's no glory without suffering, without sifting. Sifting is the pathway to maturity. The road to greatness is paved with the cobblestones of adversity. Now, this is in direct conflict with the teaching I hear so much today. This is your best life now. Come to Jesus. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's a lie. Come to Jesus, and in this world, you will have trouble because your best life is not now. Your best life is to come because this life is nothing more than a preparation for the next life. You call Hewlett Howell up, and you say, Hewlett, what's better now, to be with the Lord or to be in Victoria, Texas? You say, the Lord. Do you know what Victoria, Texas reminded me of? How much I love Wimberley. Because it's prettier up here. Can I get a witness? Yeah. So here's the deal, y'all. Satan wants to do me harm. God is so much God, he'll take Satan's nonsense and flip it that I might become like Jesus. Wow. Satan's a punk. He's a bully. So King Jesus wraps him in the mouth and puts him in his place. I love that about him. The worst thing that can happen to a child of God is that they die and they go live with Jesus. That ain't bad, is it, y'all? Peter wrote this way in his epistle, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So if you trusted Jesus, he's looking at you. So you look at this passage, you say, why did James die with the sword and Peter didn't? What's going on there? Did, did, did God love Peter more than he loved James? No, James was finished. That's why he died. You see, you're immortal until God's finished with you. You're not going to die until God's done. James was done, so God let him die. Peter wasn't done, so God let him live. In fact, Peter knew that this wasn't going to be the end. He knew, Peter knew that his life belonged to King Jesus. And so he lived with no fear. No fear. My dad said that. My dad went through the World War II, landed day two at Normandy. He saw all kinds of human atrocity. He liberated Buchenwald prison camp. He saw how evil people behave. He, he, during the Battle of the Bulge, he got down on his knees and asked Christ in his heart. He said, that night I lost all fear. He went through his whole life not fearing anything. My dad wasn't scared of anything, anything. He said, when you see Jesus, you just lose your fear. Man. What happened to us? Because he knew Jesus and the will of King Jesus was greater than the fears of what we worry about. Have no fear. Jesus is near. Hmm. And you will never outlive your, your usefulness. Any of y'all over 80, I want to say this to you. You will not outlive your usefulness. God is still using you. Anybody under 20, you will not outlive your usefulness. God wants to use you, and you will live as long as you're useful to the Lord. And when he's done, you're done, he'll take you home. I had to remind myself of that this morning in my advanced 40s. (laughs) Very advanced 40s. You see, God hears our prayers. He hears our prayers. And our prayers are not that we inform him, but we align our lives to him. That's what our prayers do. Our prayers make us aware of God, not God aware of us. He hears our prayers. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him were being made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell and struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter was so confident in the Lord, he knew that no, no prison could hold him. He was so sound asleep, the angels lit up the jail cell. The angels had to kick him in the ribs and say, Peter, wake up, get up. And he was going like, oh, what? Oh, what? Put on your clothes, dude. We're going to leave. Oh, get your cloak. What? Come on. And he took him outside. Finally, when the angel disappeared, Peter went, that was real. Why was Peter, was he just stupid? Peter was so confident in King Jesus, he could sleep in a prison chained with, by, with two guards chained to him with absolutely no worry. Dad gum him, I can't even do that in my king-size bed on Summit Drive. And here Peter was because he knew that he could trust God was his life. He thought he was seeing when he had passed the first and second century, the iron gate opened leading into the city. It opened for them when it's on the cord and he went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him and Peter came to himself and said, now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark. He was also the one, John Mark is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. He was the one who went on the missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and he got homesick and he went home, and that caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas. We'll talk about that later in this Uncommon series, that they created a relational rift. How did these two godly men handle a relational rift? And we'll, we'll see what that happened. John Mark also was a young man who was stripped naked in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested and ran away. And Mary was also one of the Marys that went to the tomb and saw the resurrected Lord. This is who it was. He went, Peter went to the place of familiarity. And there were many gathered together and they were praying. And the knock at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhonda came to answer. And Peter recognized her voice and he said, help me Rhonda, help, help me Rhonda. Sorry. That's the Beach Boys for those of you who are under 20. And, and, and recognized Peter's voice and her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and, and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind, Rhonda. But she kept on insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel, which we won't talk about guardian angels and all that today. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Why were they amazed? They were praying. Why were they amazed? Because they're just like us. We pray, we pray, and when God answers, we're amazed. Oh, shouldn't we be expecting? Shouldn't they open the door and say, Peter, it's about time you got here. If you'd have woke up when the angel first got there, you'd been here 10 minutes ago. Did you bring some ice cream? Come on. 
And this shows me the depth of positional and practical. That we positional know, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Because I'm in the position of being a child of God under the provision and the protection of God. But practically I worry. Because I say this, but I believe that. Will I shift from positional to be the reality in my practical? I will not die but live to declare what God has done. Oh, God, please don't kill me. Well, I shift from positional to practical and live in confidence of the Lord. But motioned them with his hand to be silent. He described them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And then he said, don't tell, tell these things to James. That's the brother of Jesus, not the one who got killed because he couldn't hear anything. He was in heaven. Tell James, the brother of Jesus, and to the other brothers, that's the other apostles. Then he departed and he went to another place. Then Peter said in his epistle, and his ears are open to their prayers. Why? Because Peter positionally experienced the practical as God had freed him. What no prison could hold that Peter boy, he was free. Peter relaxed in the sovereign will of God. Will you do the same? Will you relax in the sovereign will of God? Peter knew, so he slept soundly. He knew that the angels would come and rescue him. They had to wake him up. Peter knew he wasn't going to die because Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk whenever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. On the same beach where Jesus called Peter the first time to come follow him. On that same beach around a charcoal fire. Get this. Around a charcoal fire, Peter denied Jesus. And around a charcoal fire, Jesus restores Peter. He says, when you're old, you're going to die. But until that time, follow me. Peter, being a young man, knew, I ain't old. Let's go. Let's live off for Jesus. When I get old, I worry about dying. Even then, the Fox's Books of Martyrs, Book of Martyrs, says this. Peter said to the Romans who are going to kill him, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord Jesus. Crucify me upside down. And they did. And they did. Wow. I can relax in the sovereign will of God in the middle of the circumstances of my life, realizing that whatever is going on in me is not what's happening to me that matters, but what's happening in me. And I'm going to quote Paul saying, I know whom I have believed in and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm going to guard my heart because it's the wellspring of life. I'm going to trust in him no matter what. Jesus, I'm yours, your sovereignty, because you hear my prayer. And I live different. I live different. You see, Peter responded in obedience. 
And that makes him different from me because I often don't respond in obedience. Even when God shows me what he wants me to do, I want more evidence. Am I by myself on that? I say, you know, I, I see that God, I see that revelation, but I just need a little more proof. You know, I need a proof. And I'll start digging around in my Bible looking for proof. So that ain't God. You know what? This reaction is rooted in the false belief that God loves everybody but me. And basically, I'm a loser. And God really doesn't love me because Satan loves to impute God's righteousness. And he tells me the lie. Yeah, Jesus loves the little children of the world, but you, he hates. And he's out to get you. He wants to slap you on the head. And if you do make it to heaven, it's going to be by the skin of your teeth because you're basically worthless. Any of y'all ever hear that from, from Satan? When Jesus says, you are my beloved, and see the seeds of doubt, listen to this, the seeds of doubt will grow into a tree of rebellion. But the seeds of trust will harvest the fruits of righteousness. Ooh. Will we be obey God in the middle of our suffering and our trial? Peter became Peter because he trusted Jesus when he was being sifted. You become a child of God by trusting him in faith and becoming like him through obedience. I've strained in prayer. These people were straining in prayer. God hears our prayers. I've strained in prayer for you. For you. So many of you, individually and personally and corporately, I've prayed for you. I've strained in prayer for you. I've prayed for revival in this church. I prayed for a spirit of unity in this church. I told the first service, the first gathering, I said, I pray for you that you'll be in unity. And I'm praying for you, the second gathering, same thing. I'm praying that you'll see ourselves as one family, not two families, but one. I'm praying for a spirit of unity. I'm praying that in this season that we will really trust God. I'm praying for my children. I'm straining in prayer for them. I'm straining in prayer for them. I'm praying for, um, I'm praying for pastors. You guys don't know this, but I have a ministry to pastors. Some of y'all know it, but I have a ministry of pastors. They're hurting and they tell me things that they won't tell anybody else. And I strain in prayer for them. Why do you think I'm so passionate about it? Why are we doing a Building Lives Conference in September for pastors? Because I love pastors and I love the church. And I want to see pastors thrive. And I want you to see them. And I want you to enter into it with this. Because we're in this together. Should I not live with the expect, expectation that God's going to move? Should I not live with the expectation that revival is going to break out here? Should I not live with the expectation that we're going to be in unity? Should I not be in, live in expectation that God's going to use us to help build pastors all over the world? Should I not live in that expectation? Should I not li live in the expectation that my children are going to serve the Lord as long as they live? Am I, am I not going to live in that expectation? Am I not going to, as I strain in prayer for our, my marriage with Tara, Am I not going to live with the expectation that Tara and I are going to thrive together as a married couple? I'm, I'm going to live in that expectation, y'all. Because I'm going to move from positional to practical. And I'm going to claim the promise and I'm going to live in the promise. Will you do that? Those of you that are in Gary Job Corps, you're not going to live in the expectation that God is going to use you beyond this season? 
that he's placed you here in this time and place in this church, which is crazy. Y'all should get on a bus and drive up here to church. Come on. Because we love you. You live in the expectation. Those of you who are in college, do not live in the expectation that God is for you and not against you. And he wants to use you greatly in any fame or any education or any prosperity you get. It goes all back to the glory of God. Those of you who've got kids, do not live in the expectation that when you plant the seed, God will grow the seed. Do you not live in that expectation? Those of you who are old, do you not live in the expectation that you are immortal until God's finished with you? So why don't you suck up and pull up your britches and live all for Jesus and quit whining and complaining. Nobody cares about your arthritis. Just go on. Live for Jesus. We'll slow down and let you catch up. It's okay. I'm talking about me now. Wow. To live in that expectation. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. That God deals with our enemies. Let God deal with them. Peter said this in 1 Peter 3.12, the last of this, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord are to the righteous. Hmm. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now when the day came when there was, little, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, he was called, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the soldiers and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea to Caesarea, from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. He went into Caesarea. Some of y'all have been there to the great amphitheater of Caesarea. He went there. Flavius Josephus said he went into that amphitheater to make his speech, which we're about to read of, dressed in a solid silver, sterling silver outfit. And then when he came into the amphitheater, the sun hit him just right, and he lit up the whole place, reflecting the whole place. And he went in there, and, um, and he spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. It came into him in one accord, and having persuaded Baltus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, and because their country depended on the king's country for food. This is Luke giving detail of what happened. On an appointed day, Herod was put on his royal robes at that silver outfit, took his seat on the throne right in the middle of the amphitheater, and he delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of God, not of man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to the Lord, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Flavius Josephus said this, that he was eaten by worms that that. Herod Agrippa I, that's who this guy was, was eaten by tapeworms. Tapeworms. Tapeworms come into your body by eating unpure food. They migrate usually to your liver. Well, they'll form a cyst on your liver. And then at the right time, they erupt and they release them into your, sometimes they, they line in your liver, sometimes in your intestines. Uh, tapeworms can be extracted. They can grow up to be 20 feet. But doctors say this, that these worms ruptured as a cyst in his liver, releasing millions of worms into his body. And Flavius Josephus said it took him five days to die as the worms ate his internal organs. Woo! Which says to me that Herod 
was defeated by the King Jesus at the prison, but his arrogance followed him. And the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God sent the worms into Herod's life before Herod had the chance for them to erupt. And God in his timing says, I will bring vengeance on the wicked. God doesn't share his glory with anybody. Herod crossed the line and God killed him. God is the God of vengeance, not us. Peter didn't say, hey, let's all get a revolt and go kill Herod. God said, I got this. I got this. We're going to give him worms. I got this. I got this. You know, and we start trying to defend ourselves and we try to bring vengeance on ourselves. God said, I got this. I got it. I got it. Paul said this way, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If it possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave that to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll, reap, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome evil by, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. With good. You see, the opposition to King Jesus today is very real. And things are moving more and more hostile towards the things of God. So what should we do? Protest. Boycott. No. We should lift our hands in prayer. That we should take those prayer-soaked hands and extend it in love. They will know that we are followers of Christ by our love, not by our protest, but by our love. By our love. The early church changed the world with love. Y'all, our government is not going to fix the woes of this world. Do you know that? King Jesus will. So I want to ask about you. Where are you today? Are you living in the position of peace, in the practicality of peace? Are you overcome by your circumstances and your situation? Are you straining in prayer? Are you living victoriously because King Jesus is victorious? Have you even trusted Jesus? Do you even know him? I want to finish with that same psalm I started with. In fact, if you'll throw that up on the screen, I'll just read it for you again. It's on the screen now. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Wow. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful. He's the God of your circumstances. You will not outlive your, your usefulness. He will repay and harvest your, your, uh, your, bring vengeance to your enemies. He hears your prayers. He's close to you when you're crushed in spirit. Because great is his faithfulness. It's new every morning. Let me ask you this. Have you trusted him? Have you given your life to King Jesus? If you haven't, then today's your day. To simply say, Jesus, I'm yours. 
If you have trusted him, today's your day to remind yourself, Jesus, I'm yours. In church, today's our day to remind ourselves, Jesus, we are yours. Because great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've said to us this morning. And I thank you that you love us with a love that will not let us go. It's relentless. It's undying. It's eternal. And it gives us hope. And Father, I pray for those in this room this morning who need to give their life to you. They know who they are. You know who they are. You're working in conviction on them today. And I pray, oh God, that they will pray this prayer with me right now. If this is you and you know you need to trust Jesus, I invite you to pray this prayer with me right now. Pray, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I'm yours. I give my life to you. Thank you for forgiving me, for loving me. Be my savior, Jesus, I'm yours. For those of you who belong to Jesus, why don't you remind yourself, Jesus, I'm yours. Church, can we say together, Jesus, we are yours? Can we be bold enough to pray that out loud? Jesus, we are yours. Let's try that. Let's pray it out loud. Jesus, we are yours. One more time. Jesus, we are yours. We're going to live for your glory, God, because you're so faithful and you're so good. There's none like you. And I pray this in your strong name. Amen. I'm going to sing a song for you. Our prayer team's at the front and at the back. I'm going to sing a song. And I invite you to come and pray. If you're facing adversity, trial, tribulation, you need to pray with someone. We're here to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. If you have a spiritual decision, we'd love to pray for you. If there's a hurt, a habit, a healing you need, we're going to pray for you. Why? Because we love you. We're family. We're family. But I want you to listen to this song, okay? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, thy fellow. As thou hast been now forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercy.
summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses alive. Join with our nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Let's stand and sing. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have need in thy hand, Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Straight forward today and bright hope for tomorrow. Great. 